Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 230. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Ziga Financial, Jay Pestercelli. Jay, what's going on today? Hello, Derek. How are you? I'm okay. I got plenty to talk about today. All right. Well, um, I'm excited to hear what you got in store for us. So let's uh, let's see what you're cooking. By the way, uh, just to let you and uh, this will be news to you, I'm initiating uh, analyst coverage from Zega on the Atlanta Braves stock. Uh, the Atlanta Braves started trading today as their independent stock, or was it yeah, today or yesterday? I guess Liberty Media split it off, but um, that I, I really have no idea what their financials are. But it something like that, just from a sports fan interest, is appealing because it's it's you know a lot of those those clubs, you really have no idea what their finances are. So this is a chance to actually see finances, Jay. I know you'll be, you'll be looking at my research reports. All right. I am. I am. I know the Packers did it like, you know, a decade ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago, right? The, pe- the Packers are, uh, went public and issued stock. So is it the same thing as that? I don't think so. Now I'm doing this off the cuff. I think the, the Packers are private, but they're actually like you could own a, a piece of them. Oh, maybe that's what it is. So, so it's not, it didn't trade, but you could own a piece of it. Got it. Okay. Yep. That could be. Well, I, actually, this, this is your neck of the woods. There was a hockey team. That stock was public. They did an IPO back in 1994. And the symbol was P-U-C-K for puck. Your own Florida Panthers, Jay. Oh, the Florida Panthers. That's a hockey team here? <laughs> They only made the Stanley Cup Finals. They didn't win. But yeah, Jay, that's a hockey team. Oh, all right. I'm buying you okay. tickets next year. I'm going to have you and uh, and Mike Puck. Uh, the, see, see that? How that transition Yeah, there? I saw what you did with Puck. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have yeah, you guys likes, go to a game. Yeah, He likes sure. it. Nobody ever brings that joke up to him, I'm sure. I'm sure no one ever has. I'm probably the first, <laughs> but. All right. Um, oh, look at that. The Atlanta Braves have a conference call in August. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that. Can I tell you, Jay, that... This is a, a long time ago. I was trading a stock called Elon, and it was it was like a new thing in uh, I think it was the late '90s, where you could do your mortgage online. I know that sounds really hilarious because everybody can do their mortgage online right now, but I remember I, they they had like minimal analyst coverage, and a bunch of us we were working at Schwab, we were trading the stock, and I decided to to call into the the conference call, so I went on the Bloomberg. I dialed in and they answer the phone and they say, you know, your name and, uh, and your firm. So I said, Charles Schwab. Oh, no, you did not. <laughs> yeah. So I apparently grabbed the <laughs> analyst number. So like there's, I'm the third quote unquote analyst on here. So the two guys go before me and then they come to me. All right, we're going to come to Derek Moore from Charles Schwab. Uh, and I'm live on the call. So I asked a question, but I see like my director running out like, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, I, they came back around to me, Jay, and I did not. I, I said, no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, that was that was I, uh, my pretend analyst days, Jay. Listen, you, you have permission to go uh, uh, as the representative from the Broken, Par- Broken Chart Pi- podcast <laughs> on the Atlanta Braves conference call. Yeah, I'm going to go on there and ask a, a number of questions. All right, I Jay, let's should. stop the silliness. Uh, where do we want to start today? I think we'll start with, why don't we start with earnings? Because we're kind of in earnings season. 
Tesla reported yesterday. We, we have some of the big ones coming up. You know, they beat analyst expectations. Remember, analyst expectations, you could lower analyst expectations enough and still beat. But normally, the street likes that. Uh, it sounded like the margins came in less than expected, and there was something about cyber trucks and a dojo. I have no idea what that is. But I don't know. I mean, is we're in earnings season again. What do you think, Jay? I think the for the most part, the banks have been pretty good. We've got a lot of those out so far. Uh, you're right. Um, it's still a little early on with tech, but Netflix and and Tesla have uh, have announced, and both uh, were fairly disappointing um, uh, to the market. At least treated them as disappointing. I like you said. I don't know. Like. Hey, you beat expectations, but oh, you did, your margins are shrinking. So you know you never really know what the how the market is going to um, you know interpret uh, the numbers that uh, that get released. But I mean, in general, when you think about the expectations that are in kind of the S and P, we were expecting declines right this quarter year over year, weren't we? We were expecting earnings to come in lower than Q two of twenty twenty two. I don't, it doesn't seem like that's the case so far, right? You usually, Derek, and I will, I will blame you for this. You usually produce some sort of a, uh, you know, tracking of earnings and we talk through that. Maybe for next week we can go through that, but I'm not, not that I'm like, uh, you know, putting you on the spot there and saying it's your fault. But I think so far things have seemed better than expected, Um even though we were expecting lower numbers, am I you 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 on page with that? You on the, you agree? Yeah, I mean, this was the the quarter that was supposed to be the trough in earnings. Meaning, I've seen estimates anywhere from from six to nine percent, but I think the median's around six percent down year over year. Meaning, what was Q two and twenty two? What was Q two and twenty three? Of course, last quarter was supposed to be down five percent, and it was basically flat. Uh, so I will try and pull up the, uh, I usually use the Refinitiv IBS uh, dashboard. Uh, we're recording this for anyone listening on a, what's today, Thursday. Usually the weekly one comes out on Friday mornings, Jay, and we're recording a day early. So that's why I don't have it. Uh, but but yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, it, but, it, but I think you're spot on. It, it's, we expect this is supposed to be the bad quarter. And then the expectations for Q3 and Q4 are actually something like eight or nine percent growth year over year. So, you know, uh, as I'm looking for that, I'll let you kind of go on 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 the earnings, though. Yeah, um, I, look, I think I think th- this. Th- I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot riding on earnings season because uh, this time around, because we feel like a lot of the bad news has been out. Right, we kind of know what the Fed has done, what they're going to do. That's out there. We seem to have sidestepped a recession the first half of the year, right? Markets seem to be on an uprise. And 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 the, the the question will be, has the market's appreciation been warranted by what corporate earnings are going to show us? Uh so I think there's a lot of a lot of people paying attention to this, right? Because like you said, it was expected to be kind of the trough. And we always know, right, the market will lead, generally lead the change in earnings. Uh so I you know when I think about it, uh, I think it actually this this is this is kind of a biggie in my opinion, right? Because if earnings come in strong or flat year over year versus the decline, it tells us that 
earnings in the back half of the year probably are, you know, where there is currently projected growth, that may be under projecting what the growth will look like. And so I do think that if, the, if corporate earnings can hold up here, uh, I think you're going to, you know, you could have a pretty strong second half of the year. We should probably dig into at some point, like what can derail this rally at this point? Because a lot of the bad news is out and the market doesn't seem to care right now. So, you know, it's always going to be something we don't see. But, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about. This is kind of a big deal, I think, this this quarter around. Not that it's ever a little deal, but I think this one really matters for the turn. I'm going to call it a pivot corner. And it's, you know, it, it's sort of a, a pivot point, I think, in earnings. Now, I did pull up through uh, July 19th, uh, Refinitive S&P Earnings Dashboard. 50 companies on the S&P have reported so far, 450 remaining. Of course, one's reported today, but are not captured in here. And what they do is they put out what's called a blended earnings uh, report. And it's, in this case, the 50 companies that have already reported and the estimates on the remaining 450. Now, Google, Microsoft, Apple, I mean, big companies still are, are to report. But so far, uh, it's minus 8.2% year over year, blended. And revenue is down minus 0.8%, which actually shows margins are, are contracting there. And then if you look at the, the sectors, Jay, I won't go through all these, but you know, energy is down almost 50% year over year. And, and we knew that. Uh, the other materials down 30%, healthcare down 28%. Consumer discretionary, though, up 28%. And financials up 8%. Uh, consumer services up 9.3%. So I'll kind of stop there. We're not going to go through line by line on this. But yeah, I, I call it a pivot quarter, Jay. I'm, I'm coining that. Can I trademark that? Pivot quarter. Piv- earnings pivot. Got it. Earnings pivot. All right. Well, we, you mentioned the uh, kind of digging in a little bit about, let's just say, what could derail? What could derail the the estimates that we have and I think I mentioned it, or I, I said the M word already. I think margins, first and foremost, is the thing that could collapse. You know, we've had really high margins, meaning what's the net profit? You know, what, what are you making on every sale of a widget that you're doing or providing? And margins have been really, really high. And, and a lot of people say, look, we have so much technology now in the S&P 500. Of course, they're going to be higher. We're getting more leverage with technology. And that's true. I mean, we're not, the S&P is not made up of steam engines and, and oil companies as much anymore. But that first and foremost is if there's a collapse in margins, and, and a collapse in margins probably has to have higher input cost or, or weaker demand. That's one of the first things, Jay, but anything on your radar that's sort of sitting out there, like what, what's sort of the, the things that are out there that, that really don't, aren't really front and center. I mean, I'm tired of talking about inflation, Jay. I, I just am. So if you want to talk about it, go for it. But I know I don't want to talk about it, but let's talk about unemployment. So if there really is kind of a contraction in job availability and a lot of people end up, you know, you know, that, that we see unemployment go, I don't know, to five and a half, six, which listen, I'm giving you something that I think is very low chance of happening. I think that would be pretty disruptive to the market, uh, all of a sudden people are losing their job, all of a sudden the consumer, the strength of the consumer comes under question, um, which by the way, I think Jay Powell would not be too, too upset about if it just kind of flashed there. 
Um, but I think the strength of the consumer could be the thing that slows this market down a little bit. Um, to me, that that's kind of the unknown one, right? I think there's we haven't seen that happen yet. It's it's uh, we've talked about it in the past that that sometimes is the last shoe to fall before the recession kicks in. All the other pieces have happened that hasn't yet. I think that could be something that could derail the market. You start to see um, um, you start to see jobs kind of drying up. What about what about just wages though? I mean, I, I think a lot of what companies input costs are made up of is is wages. Listen, you said you don't want to talk about inflation, and then you went right to wages. No, no, I don't want to talk about inflation. I want to talk about wages, wages, and maybe I'll I'll bring in the yeah this other part that I was kind of kind of dangle uh, as a, as a tease for a bit. But uh, Bloomberg put out an interesting graph, and it's the number of workers on strike could eclipse recent years. So this is Teamsters, and the auto workers are threatening to join picket lines. And so what they have here, I know the audience can't see this. In 2019, I'm going to ballpark this, about 500,000 workers went on strike. 2020, next to nothing. 2021, you know, call it 100 grand. 2022, maybe a little over 200,000. It's approaching 800,000. And the way they do this, I think, is they have the actors, UPS, the big three automakers, and I guess there have been some strikes already this year. I don't know. I mean, UPS seems like that might put a crimp in stuff moving around, right? Okay, so that, that yeah, I'm looking at the chart, and what UPS has three hundred thousand plus workers on strike right now. Did I? Did I? No, 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 not yet, not yet. Oh, oh threatening, 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 threatening. Yeah, yeah, but that's a lot. You're right. That's a ton, and you know, uh, so but. Uh, so let's, you know, that goes back to your margin piece, right? So all of a sudden it's going to cost UPS more to deliver packages. Not like UPS is going to shut down. Either they have to raise wages. I'm assuming that's what the strike is about to at least to some degree, either give more, whatever it is, greater costs. But you know, if, if they, they still need drivers, right. So they're going to increase their costs, try to steal drivers away from other places. So yeah, it could push up. You know, but again, it's 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 a it's a margin question, right? Um, yeah, which leads to inflation. Oh, what's you UPS said, gonna you do? said not pass, What are they going to do? Not pass it through? Like that? That's all kind of related here when you want to talk about wages. So, yeah, I, I sure I think this is a risk. It's definitely an interesting uh, piece. I mean, I don't like if the actors go on strike, Derek. Like, just think about this for a minute. Think about how much money won't go back into the system because of, you know, the pay of, of actors. And I know all, most actors don't have exorbitant amount of, of earnings, right? But some do. Some are amazing. And, uh, you know, if that all kind of dries up, does that hurt the economy? Because it just stops the circulation of dollars, stops the spending? I don't know. So it's short, I don't think uh, so. short Tiffany. No? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm going to take the other side of, of the actors. I don't think the actors and the writers, now they don't list writers here, matter as much. Now, you and I both love the show Succession and the writing on that. You know, those writers are Hall of Fame writers. I'm not saying these people aren't good. But I think a lot of people, the way that Hollywood works, and by the way, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I think I do. So Hollywood, uh, you get residuals. So somebody, you know, it's, we were talking to somebody who was on a show once 
and they still get checks from something they were on 10 years ago. You know, imagine being an actor on Law and Order and every, you know, if you break into any house in America and turn on anybody's TV and change the channel enough, you're bound to find a, an episode of Law and Order. But, and a lot of the actors, unfortunately, I mean, the actors and, and the writers, a lot of them don't make much money. You know, it's sort of tilted. The big three automakers and UPS for sure. The big three automakers, that's an interesting one because I do think it would, it would drive prices up because it would lower supply. But I was reading the other day, Jay, that, you know, EVs have something like 100 days of inventory and, and regular cars have something like 50 days of inventory. So I, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's one of, you know, this is, these seem like big numbers to me where it's just not really priced in. So I, I don't know. Do you like my, my expert, non-expert uh, commentary yeah, on, you're on gonna, actors? You're, listen, you're happy to fake it. We, that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Don't, do you think well, that uh, the automakers, though, in, in some ways, in a weird way, it helps them? Because it actually saves cost and reduces inventory? I don't know. Uh, nope. Nope, nope, nope. Okay. So I think your inventory comment, and I want to dig into it, but you brought it up again, right? Your, your data is a little skewed, right? I think the largest EV automaker is not included in your numbers, right? That's right. Your 100-day supply doesn't include Tesla. Like that's kind of a skewed data point. And I know, and I know that you didn't come up with it, but the people that put that data point out there, like, oh, good, good job giving us the full pictures on EVs versus combustion engines. Yeah. All right. This is. I'm going to put this in in the column of. It's interesting. It's not as interesting to me as the container shipping, when I kind of brought that up in 2020, but it's just something. It's just something that's out there. You know, the, the, I think this data is, and I'm trying to think through, I guess it's been about 30 years since I've been doing this now. And I feel like the economy has changed. And I'm not sure that some of the classic ways that we capture data are as good as they were back, you know, in the 90s or even the 2000s. But you look at something like the leading economic indicators, and it's low. Like this is a, a conference board, U.S. leading economic index. 10 economic indicators, you know, stuff in here is like real retail sales and you have uh, manufacturing and stuff like that. I mean, it's year over year, it's minus seven, eight percent. And you look on this chart, the audience can't see it, but Jay, you and I can. Anytime it's been down this low, it's also had a recession. I mean, but then you look at like travel and other things and it's, it's going gangbusters. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of this, Jay. I don't know if it matters because everything's matter. Well, I think, A, the economy of the United States is, is kind of changing over time, right? This goes back to like when you look at this chart but that nobody can see, um, that the level where it is going back to the mid-60s, every time it was down here, it indicated that there was a recession. I think there's a lot of stuff, Derek, that um, is changing about our economy and the markets. I think there's plenty of sectors within the market today that are showing weakness, right? But it's just that the big cap, the large caps, the, the mega caps are dragging the rest of the market up. And so everybody feels good because their brokerage statement is up or their 401k is up. But yeah, there's plenty of parts of the economy that are not doing great. And I'm not surprised that you get these, you know, um, uh, 
I'll say, I'll call them indicators or data points that were previously pretty good because they're a better reflection of, uh, of our economy, that today are still reflecting the areas that are having problems, but those areas aren't nearly as important. And so, you know, I don't know. I think, I think you're right. Things, things, I think things change as, uh, as time goes on. Um, certainly our economy is evolving and, and changing. So, you know, it could just be that there are, it's accurately reflecting that parts of the economy are feeling a squeeze, but, you know, I, you know, I think you and I both agree. It certainly doesn't feel broad based that the U S economy is in a recession to us. Um, and even if it does, the stock market isn't behaving like it, like it, like it's in one. It reminds me of like, remember when California used to have rolling blackouts, it's like rolling bad news in the economy, but it's not all at once. Like some people have the lights on, you know, some people don't. Right, Jay. I mean, it's kind of, um, all right, P- PPL. By the way, Tracy Alloway from Bloomberg had put out uh, an article, and I, I didn't get to read through all of it, but her main point was she looked at New Zealand economic data. And I know you're very fixated on the New Zealand markets, Jay, and you follow those uh, very closely. Um, and by the way, we have New Zealand listeners, and we really like those people. We like any of our listeners. So they can they can email me, Derek.moore at SegaFinancial.com. Uh, Z is in Zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly, dot com. Um, but her point was that responses on a lot of these surveys are way down. So, you know, you think about it, if you're trying to survey and you normally get like 80% or 60% and now you're only getting 40, 50 or 30%, the quality of some of this capture might be just, I don't know. I don't know if it's anything. And I've also heard it on some of the U.S. data too, that the response rates on some of these surveys are down. Like, are things so bad? They're like, don't even bother me. I'm not going to answer. Or things are so good. I don't have time to even answer a survey. So I'll just bring that up, Jay. But PPI and CPI is another thing, unless you want to talk about the New Zealand economic picture, Jay. No, no, I'm, I'm good. I think you covered New Zealand. We, we love New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot more movies there. PPI, yeah, they shoot, they shoot a lot of Star Wars movies, yeah. Uh, PPI, Producer Price Index. So that's, you think about the companies who are making stuff, PPI measures their cost. It's the input cost. And then you have CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index. Jay, recently, the spread between, so if you take PPI minus CPI, it is uh, negative, meaning PPI and inflation uh, producer inflation, the, the cost of the stuff that they need ha- is much lower than the consumer side. And, you know, there, there's any number of reasons for that. You could say, well, maybe, you know, things are really fixed even more on the, on the, the producer side. Or you could take the contrarian and say, well, maybe that's a, a sign that demand is waning and people are lowering their prices to to get rid of inventory. Maybe it's an inventory problem. But the chart... Uh, I'd sent over to you, Jay, is when PPI minus CPI spread, uh, they they co- they put a, a graph and they have a line with that spread on it. And then they put gap earnings. So those are, are earnings. And there seems to be a correlation when this spread goes negative, that earnings go negative as well. I, I hadn't seen this one before, Jay. Um, I don't know if you've seen this at all, but I just thought it was an interesting data point to look at. But I, without knowing more about the reason for PPI, uh, it, it's tough to say. 
Yeah, I've, I haven't thought about this uh, earnings as it relates to the difference between PPI and CPI. So right now it's negative because CPI is higher than PPI, right? So you have the smaller number minus the bigger number, it gets negative. Um, and it seems that when that happens, you're right, the year-over-year change in earnings uh, is also negative. It doesn't always look like it's immediate, but you know when you when when you look at this, I mean, we're just barely getting negative on this this gap earnings um, uh, line, right? And historically, where we are now, am I reading this correctly? Like we're a hundred basis points away, right? PPI minus CPI is that the way to read this one? I, I mean, historic. This is pretty extreme. Um, it looks like it happened in the 08 period, but um, it doesn't look like, you know, the percentage of earnings uh, year over year changes dropped very much. And so I think we may be dealing with another, you know, interesting, you know, one off for this one. It seemed like we got a lot of random data, not, not random because you randomly put it together, but there's a lot of different data points that to me aren't following what their history would tell us. Right. And could it be that, everything is just wrong this time around or things have yet to occur. Don't know. I guess like you say, we'll, we'll look at it in a year and say, Oh yeah, we should have paid more attention to that one. But when you think about the logic here, right? PPI, CPI, by the way, this oscillates, right? The negatives, the positives on this definitely seem to oscillate in, you know, two year periods. Right. So I think we should probably expect PPI, to be lower than CPI for a while, right? This is all, this is a quick dip. This is not long enough. So I think we'll continue to see this for a little longer. And, um, you know, maybe maybe it does end up, I, you know, I don't know if it's a result or if it's a cause or effect, right? Why year over year earnings are changing. I just, I haven't really thought through this correlation in the past. This was from Real Investment Advice. I'm not familiar with them. Posted on isabel.net. But uh, yeah, it's always, I always like looking at stuff like this. I also look, you and I have talked in the past about this idea of if you do a specific Google search between one year and the next, and you go back like 10 years, so you search, okay, all of, all of 2010 or all of 1999, and you look at the predictions for crashes and things like that. So somebody had sent me this, and what this is, it's a chart of, I think this is the S&P 500. It goes back to 2009-ish. But then they, they superimposed on the chart. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki, who is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and some of his different statements. So they go back, you know, April 7th of 2011. And it says, you know, basically saying, guess what? The crash is not over. Uh, you go back. I won't read all these, Jay. But there's just these different things that are interspersed. And sometimes, by the way, like 2018, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki warns the biggest crash is coming. Um, that was 2018. And, you know, the market was near high there. So I, and, and by the way, I'll just mention, I live in Arizona. At one time, I, uh, one of the gyms I used to train for Ironman triathlons, uh, Robert and his wife, uh, worked out there and he couldn't have been nicer. And I didn't talk to him that much, but, uh, seemed like a nice enough guy. His wife was nice. So I, I think I get why somebody, uh, sent this, but I also understand why. And it's when it's not only him, but a lot of people are always saying 
oh, the crash is coming, the crash is coming. And I don't think this stuff is helpful because number one is we know that markets go up over the long term and they have these dips. And imagine if every time you reacted, whether it's this person or anybody else and went to cash, like you'd miss out on a lot of stuff. So I don't, I don't find predictions of crash is helpful. And anyone who always is putting crash predictions out there, just do that Google, the narrow by date Google search, and you'll see the same stuff over and over again because people click on that stuff. So I don't know, Jay, um, anything you can add here? Well, I think you brought this up because, you know, this is a new kind of crash prediction, right, from this uh, person, Kiyosaki. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring up why you brought it up. And it looks like he's always bearish and he's always predicting a crash. Sometimes it's right. A lot of times, you know, market continues to go up after it. I'm not saying this time is right or wrong. I'm just, I'm with you. Like, this is a, a perma crash predictor and markets go up over time. You know, I had a conversation with a client the last couple of days and he's asking me a lot of market timing questions. And I said, look, if we want to trade, you can trade, right? But we're investing together, right? Investing and trading are two very different things. I said, you think the market will be up 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And he said, well, yeah. I said, so so why why, why would you possibly hold back here? Yes, maybe you got a few more shares of something. Maybe you time it just right. But in the long run, it doesn't matter because you have a, just as big of a chance of missing out on having to buy at a higher price and getting a little less, right? So the the thing that I like to tell people and remind people is if it's in your if it's in your plan to invest, then just invest, right? Just do it. Like uh, this client asked, hey, should I buy more shares of a particular stock? I said, is that your plan? He goes, no, no, I was just thinking for a couple of days. And my answer was, if it's not your plan, I wouldn't bother doing it. If your plan is to exit those shares, then just do it, right? Make the, you, you, you have a plan, follow that plan. If you have trouble coming up with a plan, that's where guys like you and I come in and talk about, let's talk about the average amount you want to make per year. Let's talk about the average risk you can digest per year, things like that, and then build a portfolio around that. And so when you see things like um, this Twitter uh, feed of crash, 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 it's not really helpful to anybody that's doing any kind of long-term investing, right? I mean, there are plenty of people that thought the beginning of 2020 two was a great year to time to invest. And a lot of analysts said, yeah, it should be a pretty, you know, pretty easy year. And then it turned out to be the exact opposite. So I just, and nobody knew. And guess what? You should have been investing all the way through that because right now your cost basis is probably, you know, you're, you're showing gains because the market has done what it always does. It rebounds. So we, always, we don't always know the time and we don't always how, but historically speaking, the market has always gone back to new highs eventually. So invest, don't time, don't trade if you're trying to invest. Trade if you want to trade. Put that bucket of money off to the side. Uh, you and I have done plenty of trading in our past, Eric, right? But that's a slice of the money. It's not the whole thing. You invest with the main chunk. So there you go. I'll just, yeah, I'll add to, I mean, the, the, one of the core foundational things we do and, and a plug for your book as well, Buy and Hedge, uh, that's available on Amazon. But, you know, the, the whole idea of, one of the core philosophies is you buy the market, you stay invested, but you're hedged. And one of the things, you know, over the last 10 years and having clients in, in that strategy, you know, working with advisors who have their own clients in it, you know, we run, run money for advisors as well. And what's fascinating to me is a lot of times when I talk to individuals who are in those strategies, I never know what they want. And I'll explain, Jay. 
most, let's say, clients who are in, let's say, a core hedged equity strategy want the market to go up. They realize they're not going to capture everything, but they want to know they have a floor. They want to just rest a little easier at night. And But then there's this contingent, Jay, and I'm curious to hear what your experience is, who say, you know, if I'm hedged, I want the market to crash and go to zero because then I get the the hedger's opportunity. Then I miss out on the crash in theory, right? And um, and I get to buy more shares. And so, Jay, I don't know if, if you have any, um, just thinking, you know, in, in the past conversations you had, but I never know which which one they really want. It's it's just an interesting thing to me. <laughs> uh, the answer should probably be if you're along the market, you want it to go up. Of course, it is, uh, uh, you know, the, the nice thing about being hedged when the market does go down and you don't go down nearly as much as the market went down because you were hedged you get to reinvest at a lower level and you end up having more exposure, more shares on the way up than you had on the way down. Yes, that's one of the tactics. You know, if you, you can't really do that with typical insurance, right? Like think about this. We, we use um, insurance as an analogy, car insurance in particular, because when you're hedging with options, it feels very much like buying car insurance, right? You have the asset that you're protecting, your car slash your portfolio. You've got uh, the time that you're going to be in that level of protection, right? Whether your insurance is one year or one quarter, you buy a hedge for one year at a time. There you go. You've got this uh, deductible associated with your insurance. Same with your hedge. For us, you know, if we're hedging, you know, at eight to ten percent down, it means you'll experience the first loss there. Same thing with the deductible on insurance. You're going to pay the first five hundred or a thousand, depending on what your deductible is. And then the final thing is the cost. And believe it or not, they use the word premium for both, right? We options have premium and it's what you pay for your insurance. And so there's a lot of great analogies with using car insurance as uh, as a hedging analogy. Where it breaks down is when it's time to cash in on your insurance, right? With the car, if you need to cash in on your insurance, you are going to get a value. Let's let's just assume that you get the value of your car, which is probably not a safe assumption these days. But uh, let's assume you get it. That piece of paper that is your insurance policy has value, and you swap that in for you know a new car. You're your you had your deductible, and you end up getting a new car because you had the insurance policy. Woo! I used it with options and hedging. When you cash in right? You could actually buy more than the car you had, right? You're, you didn't go down as much, right? The car accident that totaled your car, uh, you don't feel the total loss when you've hedged your portfolio, right? You actually limited the amount that you of damage that you took. And so when you cash that out, you have a portfolio that now is made up more of, say, cash. But you never had to get rid of your portfolio like you do a wrecked car. You still keep that one, but now you've got cash in hand and you could then reinvest and buy more. So where the analogy breaks down is what we call the hedger's opportunities, where you have the opportunity to buy more exposure from profits from your hedge while the market is lower. There's a whole science behind that too. We don't need to get into deltas and things like that, Derek. I think we typically stay away from the Greeks on this on this uh, podcast, but I do think it's interesting when you look at you know what are you what are you hoping for from an outcome? It's almost like okay, if it's we want it to go up, but if it's going to go down, it might as well go really down because I will be able to benefit from that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great explanation of it, and I I agree. It's 
And the reason why, so that that person who says, you know, I, I hope the market crashes, that person is not saying, I know the market's going to crash and I know how to time the market. And nobody really, I, I'll argue with anybody all day who, who says they know how to do that. But really, it's, it's just, it's almost this, you have the opportunity of markets go up. You also have, if markets go down enough, you have the hedger's opportunity. So it's just kind of a, a different way of looking at it. Jay, let's let's transition to a couple other things I want to cover. One was uh, we always we keep seeing these things come out. Who is this from? This is from uh, Charlie Bellello, and this is the S and P's best performance through the first 136 trading days, 1928 to 1923. And what we're looking at here is seems like. 2023 is the 11th best uh, since 1928 price return, so not including dividends, the first 136 trading days of 18.9%. And 2019 was actually, oh, right, that was number 10, 19.1. The best ever was 1933, 54.3%. So the, the thing here, Jay, is that it says, okay, what's the price return then? Day 137 to the end of the year. And then what does the, the price return wind up being for the full calendar year? Jay, why don't you take us through just kind of what you see here? And I will tell you, I think this says that there's a good probability the markets wind up the year positive. But there are some years where day 137 to the end is negative. So I don't know if this tells us anything. What do you think, Jay? Okay, so it seems, first of all, I don't know what the significance of uh, 136 trading days was. Maybe he just happened to pull the data that day. I don't remember if there's a particular reason why he pulled it on that day. But when you're right. When you look at this, so the top 15 years, this year is the 11th best on the first 136 trading days. So I'm just, I'm repeating what you said to kind of make sure people understand. So this is the 11th best, 11th, best start to any year since 1928, right? So, uh, I mean, it's just over six months, I think. Is that the right number? Is it exactly 136? No, that can't be halfway because then that would be way too many days in the uh, in the year. So it's the 11th best start since 1928. Great. Through July 19th, Jay, through July 19th, and then give or take some holidays, right? Yeah, yeah. I should look up if that's a, a special number. By the way, episode two two thirty, which is where we are today, mm-hmm. is a number that represents new beginnings. In case you were wondering what the number meant. Oh, there uh, you go. Anyway, All right, there you go. Uh, so, of those fifteen times, uh, five times the market has been down for the next uh, one hundred and thirty seven days. No, from one hundred thirty seven to the end of the year. So the next, let's call it two uh, hundred and what, hundred and fifteen, hundred twenty days, the market has been lower. So five times the market has been lower after this. The other times uh, over the next, you know, the last half of the year here, uh, once I'm going to say really only once was it up double digits. Nineteen fifty four, there is a ten point zero percent. So all right, maybe it sneaks in, but most of the time when I look at this. That first 136 days are not repeated again for the rest of the year. However, to your point, only once 
after the year and negative after this group. So I'm saying the way I look at this data is um, the first half of the year, the first 136 days are not repeated, but still up, usually in the high single, maybe a low double digit range. But the rest of the, so that's for the rest of the year, but the year ends with the exception of one time, 1929, the year still ends positive. Um, 1987 is pretty close. For those of you uh, history buffs, the first uh, 136 days of 1987, the market was up 29.1% of the time, uh, 29.1%, sorry, 29%, 29.1% return. Woof, I'm getting hung up on that. So 1987, first half, 29%. The sec, the last part of the year was down 20.7, and it finished at a positive 2.3. Um, so let's call that one a flat year, and then one time it's negative 1929. So, Derek, I think you were going to say it looks like the year ends positive when this, so this phenomenon occurs. I would say the second half of this uh, is not nearly as impressive as the first half just about every time. Yeah, I think maybe if I was doing this, I'd add another column and and compare the first half to the second half in some sort of ratio and see if there's, I would probably do a regression on this. And I would do a regression and I would look and say, when it's this, what is it towards the end of the year? But I think we agree. Um, this is interesting stuff. I always look at stuff like this. So it's good. I also look, Jay, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, when you first sent this over, it's like, what are we looking at here? Like, why does this matter this random day? But, uh, yeah, okay, it's it's interesting. I think we have looked at things when the first half of the year does something, what the second half of the year does. This is 19 days into the second half of the year when this data was pulled. be interesting to see what uh, Charlie pulls out, uh, you know, on uh, August 23rd. I don't even know what that – I just picked. I'll make a note, and December 31st, I'll let everybody know how – this wound up. Uh, Lizanne Saunders also put something out. She said, no two bear markets recoveries look the same, evidenced by comparison of a drawdown that started in 2022 versus the year 2000. And what she did there, it looks like she did this in Bloomberg. Yep. It's uh, basically you think about instead of the index starting at whatever the price is, she indexes both to start at 100 and then does the daily change. And what you see is that the 2000 bear market and the 2022 bear market were sort of tracing over each other. I mean, they had the same shape, you know, going up, going down. But in June, that really broke apart, Jay. And I'm not a big fan of this most of the times. I know you have some problems with it as well, because when I start seeing people, you know, put into market periods, although you can, you know, generally markets can have some correlations and the past can repeat itself. And you never, the thing is, you really don't know what you have until it's done. Um, is this anything, Jay, the fact that these were correlated and now it's deviated where our market today has gone higher and back then it, it still continued lower and made new lows. Anything here, Jay? I don't find a ton of value in these either. Um, you know, she looks like she indexed the top of, you know, the pre-sell-off period as 100 and then, you know, said the decline was whatever, 70, you know, I'm just looking at where we went down on the market here, right down to 
Oh yeah, she did index the top. I missed that. She yep, indexed yep. the top. That's okay. And uh, you know, we bottomed out in 2022, right down about 25, and this other one bottomed out down about 37. So you know, I don't know, Derek. I don't find a lot of value in this. The what? The you know, the thing that I do find value in it is that the trend is in place until it's not. Like I think technicals still kind of hold up here. Right, that um, the market was in a downtrend uh, in twenty in two thousand. Right, all the way through this uh, period that they're highlighting, um, it would have been nice to have seen the rebound up. What it looks like, but I think if you could squash this, right, compress the time, right. She did it by you know exact dates, like the Marches line up with March and the Junes mm-hmm. line up with June. Right, those kinds of things. I think if you could kind of compress this and then lay them over each other. I do think you would see some similarities in behavior. You know, I'm going to, I'll go somewhere where maybe you don't want me to go, but technicals can be applied to any period, even when you have kind of a compressed time frame in a market like, say, Bitcoin. And, you know, when you look at the technicals on Bitcoin, they still work, even though things happen much, much faster in Bitcoin than they do, say, equities. So I think if you could compress this, the thing that you would see is there's a downtrend with two distinct bottoms and, you know, one or two failed uh, recoveries and then the major recovery uh, and to actually get, you know, the bear market recovery as you push to, you know, push past uh, kind of the sell off. So I, that's the only thing I take away from this is that, yeah, uh, it could look similar because human behavior is similar when it comes to investing in the level of fear. But. Yeah, that's about all I take away from this. Like, yeah, we got two bottoms and a trend reversal. Great. When that happens, uh, we could say it looks the same. But that's all about that I take away from this. I don't love the correlation from this. All right, fair enough. Uh, I do take your point, though, although I will not engage you on any crypto talk. But to quote the the great Ralph Akinpura, who's a Hall of Fame technical uh, you know technician, we were doing an event at TD, and he was the the guest uh, the guest speaker, and he was taking audience questions. And you know, he takes all sorts of questions. And somebody said, "Can you use technical analysis?" And I think it was on a, a stock on the Israeli market. And Ralph kind of said, "Look, I mean, if it's got a price and you can plot it on chart, you can use technical analysis. I mean, really, it's the study of supply and demand. And if you have a market with there's buyers and sellers." Technical analysis can apply there, and it shows you patterns, and it shows you a lot of different things. You and I are at heart technicians, so I would agree with that. I will not get into Bitcoin today, though, Jay. I will save that for just about the chart. Last thing I want to bring up is, uh, before we talk about some recommendations, how about this from Eric Baltunas? So you, uh, you were on with Eric on Bloomberg. So he's, he's their ETF uh, correspondent, reporter, puts out a lot of really good content on, uh, on exchange-traded funds. He put out this, uh, this chart, and I, there's really no empirical value of this, but it's, really, it's just a quick, interesting thing. Uh, he had uh, DIA, which is the Diamonds, the Dow Jones uh, ETF, and SPY, which, of course, is the S&P 500 ETF. And... The total return since inception, I think this is from inception. Um, I, you know, he, he doesn't actually have, have the, ex, the exact dates. But believe it, if I was to ask you, you know, if I was to ask most people, 
Do you think the Dow Jones had a higher total return, including dividends, or the S&P 500? Um, and this looks like it goes back to what? The nine, yeah, the late 90s. So that's when they were incepted. So some, from inception, you probably would think the S&P, right, Jay? I would. I would. I would have thought the Qs first, but if since you didn't give me that choice, I would say S&P over diamonds. Yes. I, I think the Russell and the Qs probably would outdo both of these, but I'm just doing that off, you know, a mental picture in my head. Uh, but to throw some numbers behind this, cumulative return, total return, 682.88% on the Dow Jones and 652.37% on SPY. And so it's a 30% difference, but an annualized difference of very little, 8.39% versus 8.23% annualized return. But yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting. And I know, uh, you know, Eric has uh, had you on and you were on with him. So I thought I'd bring it up, but there's no value in this, Jay. That's, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's just an interesting data point. And, you know, the, the thought where I really thought you were going to go with this one is the math on the way those indexes are uh, run is very different. Yes. Talk about that, Jay. Talk a little more about that. I, I was actually hoping you could talk a little more about it because you, you know more about it than I do. Right? The price weighting versus the, uh, the, the size weighting, right? So maybe just right that. Yeah. So Dow Jones is only 30 stocks. The S&P 500 is 500 stocks plus, you know, the other Google and some, if you have spinoffs. The Dow Jones is a price weighted index. What does that mean? It means if you have a stock that's $300 a share versus a stock that's $100 a share, the $300 stock will have, in theory, you know, three times the weighting of the, of the other one. Uh, it's maybe not the case, but it's, it's weighted by the highest price stock is the highest weighting in that index. And so you could have a stock, let's say, that has a 500, 500 million market cap that has the highest price be higher weight in the index than a stock that has a $3 million market cap. Like if stock, if Apple did a, a one for 20 reverse split, their weighting would go down in that index. Where the S&P, of course, is a market weighted, uh, market cap weighted. So the number of shares times the price so Apple is number one there, Jay. So that's why one of the reasons why, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, th I feel like it's almost like if you bought a share of each one and that's all you held for the Dow, like that's naturally going to create price weighting, right? Because you need to spend more on the one that costs more, right? That's the way I always kind of think of the, the Dow. I don't know if that's the exact method how it started, but uh, that's the way I always think about it versus actually having size weighting like the S&P. So they're weighted differently. Yet look, overall... Their average return uh, is pretty close, right? The Dow is, uh, over this time period, 8.39% compared to 8.23%. Um, you know, some may say like, oh, does, uh, you know, what is that, 16 basis points really matter per year? I, I guess over this lifetime, lifetime, it adds up to 30% difference. It seems extreme. I feel like I got to check these numbers. Eric's a friend. I got to check it. You should send Eric a, a text or a, an email and just ask, tell him to run it with Q's and, and the Russell so he saves us the time of doing it. But There you go. That would be nice uh, if he did it for us. That's true. <laughs> All right. I, I was going to bring up something about uh, some, you know, to watch out for in the S&P, and that's there are some pretty big companies like Airbnb and I think Blackstone. They changed some of the rules. But I'm going to, as far as companies getting into the S&P, but I'll save that till next time. 
And instead, I'll ask you, do you have any uh, any recommendations for the, the audience, Jay? So the first thing is I need to retract an accusation I made uh, to oh. you about uh, the Indiana Jones <laughs> movie. I, I blamed you for the uh, for convincing me to go see it. It was not you. You did not do that. You said you didn't do it. I said you did. You were correct. You did not do it. So I am publicly retracting my uh, uh, my dig on you for the recommendation you actually never made. So there you go. That's my first. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and I have not seen that movie. I've, I, people keep telling me, people have seen it are like, do not go see it. So do not go see it. No, no, yeah. don't. I say don't. I say, you know, you don't have to go. Um, uh, okay, recommendations. So I watched an oldie that I thought was a goldie, and I was very kind of like disappointed. I don't know how it came up. Uh, and, uh, you know, with uh, with my son going off to college soon, it kind of reminded me of the Revenge of the Nerds movie. And I was like, I think we should watch this, right? Just oh every once in a while, he and I watch an 80s movie together. I'm a child of the 80s, so I do that. And uh, so by the way, you can't even like find it on streaming. You can find number two, three, and however many more, but not number one. So I actually had to buy a DVD of it and have it delivered to my house and watch it on DVD. But like, who, who even does that anymore? But that's how dedicated I was to watching this movie. And I tell you, I was really disappointed in that movie. And like, I don't know, Derek, you must have seen it a million times when you were growing up like I did. Right. Like we're close. We're same age. I feel like that was on HBO on repeat. Like if you turn on HBO at some point, it would be on, you know, some of those years. Yeah, I was I was definitely uh, I was definitely disappointed with Revenge of the Nerds. I also think it it doesn't uh, it didn't age well. Right. Like there's some scenes in there that you're like, yeah, I think that's not really cool anymore. Um, there's a few things there that didn't age well, which, by the way, now makes sense why you just can't stream it. Uh, kind of like 16 Candles doesn't necessarily age all that well, um, you know, really going into the 80s movies. Right. So, you know, just uh, food for thought, how things uh, how things progress, which used to seem totally OK. So I don't have a recommendation. I just thought I would share that I was disappointed with what I thought was uh, was a teenage favorite. I think Xander fell asleep. In the- he fell asleep. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we had a, our son watch uh, the first Top Gun and he didn't like it as much, much as we did, you know, but I think some of it's nostalgia and you remember it. So you're like, it's already ingrained. Like, okay, this is really good. Um, like Chuck, Chuck Klosterman was on Bill Simmons' podcast. Chuck Klosterman's an, an author. And he said, imagine if you could sort of forget everything that you know and see some of the stuff that you think is awesome for the first time now, would you still think it was good? And I think there's some of that bias that comes in with, with us, you know, with stuff from the 80s, but I don't know. Um, all right. So I have, I have two recommendations. I'll make up for your lack of recommendation, but we do appreciate the retraction. That's nice. Uh, first one is, uh, I mentioned I was going to mission impossible. I thought it was solid. If you like those movies, if you like the, the structure of those movies, it gave you everything that you wanted. And so if you're not a mission impossible fan, I don't know, but it was, it delivered like it's, it's like it met expectations. And I think some of the scenes, uh, you know, there's a ton of action. I would rather have a little more of the, the cloak and dagger stuff. 
there was uh, there was one big run of that in an airport in uh, uh, I think they were in Abu Dhabi. But uh, but then the second recommendation, Jay, I started finally to watch the second season of The Bear. Um, I think I'm through about four episodes, and I I think it's. It's different than the first, but I think it's good. I know that's uh, one of the ones we talked about two years ago, right? I think it was a year ago, two years ago. I, I don't know if it was two years. Yes. Well, look, it's 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 definitely, you're right. It's a little different feel to it, but get through it. They are true to themselves. I really like the focus, the foodie focus, right? You're kind of going through each character's progression at this point if you're on episode four. So you get a little bit of everybody on this one, a little deep dive on each one of the characters. And as you finish it out, it all kind of comes through. So uh, it's absolutely, you should push through it, man. It's great. Yeah, no, I, I think it's good. I think it's good. It's it's different, but it, the craziness is still there, the, you know, and, and you've watched it. I don't want to ruin it for, the, for anyone who hasn't watched it, but there's a lot, like the character, the dialogue, the craziness, it's, it's all there uh, that they had in the first one, so. Solid, solid offering. All right, Jay. I think that's uh, it. Unless we want to cover the, uh, you know, the Paraguayan debt crisis uh, issues. That's actually a quote from a movie. You can look that up. Uh, but I think we're good, Jay. And we'll let everybody know how the market turns out when it happens. Right. Thanks, Derek. All right, Jay. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>